Welcome to episode two of Lost in Translation with Bobby Martin. I'm Sam Perkins. We're coming to you from the WCTV studios in Wilmington, Massachusetts. Uh, Bobby, thank you for, for joining us once again. Sam the man, it's good to be back. How are you doing this morning? Doing well, doing well. My allergies are killing me, but uh, you know, other than that, I'm all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was a pretty brutal morning for me. I had uh, yesterday. Both kids were were, were sick as hell, and uh, it's a miserable experience as a parent, as I'm sure you you uh, you can attest that when your kids are sick, especially my. I got a 11 month old and a five year old, and it was just. <sighs> It's just coming out both ends for both of them. So yeah, yep. Fatherhood is no joke. Well, I wanted to uh, kind of pick up where we left off, episode one, where we had talked about your career. We talked about overseas. But before we get into that, I think I feel like we have to at least um, acknowledge the what, what happened in Buffalo uh, recently, which is a, a, just a horrific tragedy Um of a, a shooting that uh, I know the investigation is still ongoing, but let's be honest, it's 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 blatantly obvious that it was a uh, racist uh, f- motivated shooting um, of a white uh, teenager who posted a manifesto talking about re- the you know th- replacement the. Uh, uh, of of white people and went and drove hours and hours and hours to a predominantly black area and killed ten people, which is just it, it's horrifying. Um, and I don't even know what to fully say about that, other than it is it is absolutely horrifying. You think about going about your day. They talked about the ten people that lost their lives. I don't know who they is. When I say they talked about, it, I feel like these right. things right. never get the appropriate. Um, uh, uh, the, just the appropriate acknowledgement for the victims, but you know, these are people that are just going about their day, going shopping, and you think it could happen to anybody. It's, it's uh, you know, any one of us, and it's horrifying that it's like it could happen to anyone because if you look at the violent crime rates and the gun crime rates in every other country basically in the world, it doesn't compare to the U.S. So, um, you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts because for me as a white dude, it's almost like it's not really my place to talk about it other than to say it's horrible and to condemn racism, that it's like it, it's not – it doesn't hit me the same. So so I would probably like to start by saying that I wouldn't give a damn if the guy was white, black, whatever other ethnic group we could, uh, you know, we could name. The fact is, is that – you know, people died, man. They they died unnecessarily, and you know, it, I I would like to see more information because what what I've learned over the years is is not to follow a narrative. It's clear that this guy was sick in the head. Um, now, remembering um, when I was coaching college basketball, we had a chance to you know go to South Carolina, so and our hotel was. You know, right across the street from the uh, church where yep. Dylan Roof had yeah. you know, murdered um, those victims. And uh, I remember just standing outside the church crying. And, you know, you, you never, I, I never want to become numb to what's going on. Yeah. Um, I think it's, um, but I, I am at the point where, you know, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm saying to myself, uh, you know, how do I explain this to my children? Now, the the world is what it is, and uh, you know if if you don't recognize, um, if if you don't pay attention to 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 the to the facts as you see them, you know, and, and grow your perspective, then it, it's gonna be it's gonna be a tough world to live in. Yeah, man. I mean, my kids are so young. It's like I don't know how to have these conversations. My son, my oldest son, is he has deep conversations all the time. It's really crazy. But, you know, talking about this sort of thing, it's like you want to insulate or I want to insulate, you know, my kids as long as I can. Uh, they, they already, my son Jack already, you know, he's my, he's biracial, but he looks very white passing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. 
red hair, just, you know, pale skin. Uh, <laughs> yeah. His hair was super curly when he was young, but now it's straight. But, like, he already under- he knows about race. You know, we don't talk about the, the, the terrible things that, that African Americans have gone through in this country or other groups yet. I don't think he's at the point yet to process that. But we're certainly not going to shield him from learning mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. But he still, you know, he notices why does he look, you know, one way or look another. Or sometimes he'd say, like, you know, that he's he's black inside but white outside and sometimes he'll say that he's glad that he is sometimes he'll say that he wishes that he was black on the outside sometimes Mm -hmm. so you know it's just interesting to see him processing these things but you look at your kids i look at you know my wife my my kids my loved ones and and you think like there's no way to 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 protect yourself at all times from the awful things out there it's terrible to almost just think well i'm just leaving it up to random chance you know people have all these different philosophies on uh you know and i don't even need to get into but people talk about oh well you know getting a, a permit to carry a firearm or not or you know you know all these different things that that could maybe mitigate to a degree you know better legislation on uh, making it harder for people to buy firearms and, and and all this sort of stuff but it's like at the end of the day you're mitigating to a degree, but there still is that it's just random chance. You leave your house and it's like every day you come back and you get to kiss your loved ones and hug your loved ones. It's 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 still a degree of random chance. And it's really hard to think about that, you know, to, to, to realize that you can only do so much and there's still just a powerless factor of luck and random chance that, that you come home each night. Yeah, it's tough. Um, you know, I, I think as parents what we end up doing is is – we, we fall back on the lessons that our parents gave us. And, you know, I've said this before, and it keeps coming to mind, that my grandmother used to say, you know, you can't prepare the road for the child. You have to prepare the child for the road. And growing up in Atlantic City was a melting pot of all different cultures. I mean, you know, Italians, you know, Jews, blacks, whites. I mean, but these were different cultures. What we ended up doing was finding a common ground you know where you know whether it's sports or just you know um hobbies yeah you know and to see i mean i don't know who this guy was I, i'm you know, i don't even know his name yeah. but uh you know for, for that to happen it's it's extremely disheartening and what what you i think the biggest thing we have to understand is what we can't do is because it's someone that looks like him, we can't look at them like they are him. Yeah. You know, and, and that's tough. That's tough because the world says otherwise. I and mean, I think we're growing we grow up in a world that shows us, or in a country that shows us nothing but division. Yeah. You know, and, you know, when you're growing up in a culture that shows you division, um, the biggest lesson our kids could, could probably learn is, is, how to how to unify themselves, and I'm not talking about with someone else. I'm just talking about who they are as people. You know, because it's tough to find out. I mean, I'm still finding out. I just I know I'm capable. Yeah. Of whatever, you know. I just don't know what that trigger is, and thankfully I haven't found it. So you know, I, I just don't want to be triggered. I would much rather spend my time trying to help my kids understand who who they are. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you say that uh, uh, you're still figuring it out. I mean, it took me a long time to realize that that I'm still figuring it out. You know, I thought, and for a long time, I felt like I had a really bad case of arrested development because of different <laughs> things that happened in my life. Like, I'm not where really? I was supposed to be, uh, where, where I should I should be, where I am now is where I should have been 10 years ago. And it's like, you know, I guess you just can't really look at it like that because we're in a constant state of evolving. I know my own dad, before he died, he was in his... <sighs> Jeez, let me think. Um, I always do the math. It's been so long. So, 47. So he was in his 60s. Uh, and when he was in his 60s, one of the proudest things I have, and I mean, there was, he was my hero growing up. Uh, as a kid, this giant person, uh, athlete. But one of the proudest things that I was, in hindsight, as I've gotten older, is that when he was in his 60s, he continued to evolve on things like race, um, which it's really hard to evolve late in life. So that's something that I'm proud of because when I was younger, you know, he was – I had a lot of friends that were that were black and of different races, and he was, like, fine with that. But when I started dating outside mm-hmm. of my race, when he noticed 
girls that I would like, middle school, they get into high school, he got very uncomfortable with it. And um, the end of high school for me and, and right before his death, he was really getting more comfortable with things. And it was it was impressive to me in hindsight now to be able to evolve. And he wasn't perfect. And there are views of his that I didn't hold or that, that I think I, I – Will always be different from him on on certain things, but that it was it was impressive to see someone evolve on stuff like that in their sixties, and it gave me hope that it gives me hope that as a country we can. But I mean, I don't know <laughs> if we'll be able to do it at the macro level instead of just individuals in my lifetime. I hope I hope in my lifetime things are better when my son is my age than they are now. Mm-hmm. My sons are my age. Um, it's so hard for me to think about the younger one almost as like the same, even though my older one's only five, it's like, it's harder to project with like a baby than being an an adult. Mm -hmm. But, um, Mm -hmm. and I I think it will be better because things are better now than they were when I was a kid in many ways. I think we lose sight of that because of the, the era that we're in, the digital era that we're in where everything gets uploaded. And, and, and so you see, um, all this terrible stuff. But it's like the world's always been a terrible place. These things have always been going on, even worse. It just wasn't that instant upload to the Internet because everyone has a phone. Um, yeah. I mean, not everyone has the, um, the, the same resolution of the picture. You know, there, there are different levels to all of this. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned evolution. I remember growing up and uh, in school you're learning about, you know, Darwin's mm-hmm. theory of evolution. And, you know, it was odd that at the end of his life, you know, he said that, you know, basically, that one thing he dis he he discounted was environment. Mm-hmm. You know, and that the environment absolutely has an effect on well, what he would call the cell. Okay, you yeah, know, that's what they, they they would call it. And um, I thought that that was interesting because you know, depending on your environment, you know, you're you're going to be influenced by it. It's not just it's it's not your genes. It's gene manipulation. Yeah. So, I mean, it's always fascinated me. And when I, when I talk to kids today, um, when I'm speaking to my own children, you know, I, I speak to them about their environment. You know, be aware of your surroundings. And in order to do that, uh, you, you have to actually present yourself to a surrounding to figure out what's going on. And as parents, we never want to do that. You know, my daughter's 12, and, you know, I'm still... I'm still nervous about her walking to the store. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh. Man, I mean, that, that terrifies me to think about. And it's like, when I remember when I was 12, you know, and I grew up in a city. And I would go to the pizza place. I'd go, you know, just walk home from school by myself, go to the pizza place, pay, play basketball with my friends after school, like hang out until 5, 6, 7 o'clock, yeah. whenever. And I think about now my son as a 12-year-old when he's at that point. I'm like thinking about him walking home by him. And it's just like. It's terrifying to me. But is the world more dangerous now? No. It's just always been. It's, it's uh, always been that way. I think we had a facade. Society had a facade in certain, in certain, you know, communities and certain towns, whatever, where you act like, you know, it's like it's Pleasantville and it's like everything's perfect. <laughs> Smallville, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but it, but it, it's always been a Truman been, Show. Been dangerous. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I want. I know that we talked. Uh, our last episode, our first episode, and uh, and I'm very excited about this. I'm hoping that this is many, 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 many episodes down the road uh, because I'm having a blast, um, even if we're talking about unpleasant topics, just the experience with you. But we talked about kind of the arc of your career from first picking up a basketball, high school, getting into it, college, overseas, retirement. Um, the question that I have specifically about overseas now, getting a little more into into the minutia, I guess, is when when you were over there culturally, when you're not playing ball, because there's a there's a lot of downtime. You know, you play what two games a week if you're playing in in a, in a league in mm-hmm. a domestic league and in a Euro, yep. Yep. you know, uh, league with teams from different countries. So there's a lot of downtime. I mean, you practice, you've got your practice, but still a lot of downtime. Um, how? What was the culture shock? Was there culture shock when you first got there? And over the years, how did you? How did you deal with that much downtime in a foreign country? Again, we're talking evolution. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I got there, it was a different world. Um, they were uh, the internet was just 
really peaking. You know, I still remember the landlines where, you know, you'd hear the, eh, the screeching and everything, yep. <laughs> you know, trying to connect. So uh, I think the biggest thing about overseas is that you, you, you have to ingratiate yourself to the culture. I mean, when in Rome, do as the Romans. I believe yeah. that used to be the saying. And it's not like we had a, a, a huge amount of time because you're practicing twice a day. So if you get up in the morning, you're probably in the gym three hours in the morning. You go home. The whole country basically takes a nap, you know, siesta. Yeah. And you wake up from siesta, and it's time to go back to practice or, you know, get ready to go back to practice. You can have your snack and maybe sit out and have a coffee or something, which uh, I loved. And, uh, you know, you were ready for practice again. You probably weren't getting out of the gym until, you know, 8 o'clock and getting ready for dinner. But. Those moments where you had a lot of free time, it was just spent observing, you know, what's going on around here. You know, maybe you're shopping and, you know, okay, they've got this, they've got that. Well, maybe I can order this. And it was always manana, 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 you know, <laughs> if you wanted something. So I've heard they move at a different speed. They move at a totally different speed, man. I mean, this is the, the tortoise in the hair. <laughs> <laughs> And um, there weren't a lot of American goods. Yeah. So, I mean, I spent my time learning how to you know, cook a little bit better for myself. Uh, my grandmother taught me how to cook for myself when I was young. But um, now I really had the time to delve into it a little bit more. And um, taking naps. Naps are so great. Yeah. <laughs> great. I don't get enough naps. I wish that I was able to get more. My <sighs> wife's able to get some every once in a while. But I... Uh, Man, I remember there's nothing like when you're an athlete and you're working hard and you get you get a break and they just take a nap and it is it, it is an experience that I miss. Um, how long did it take you because you spent almost all of your career playing in Spain and I know that you speak you're certainly still conversational, you were fluent. And I think it's one of those things that you speak it more it comes back. But like mm-hmm. how long did it take you to get conversational? To the degree that you felt like you could just talk with people here and there, maybe that's that's fully fluent. But like, how long did it take you over there? And did you do classes, or was it just picking it up from being out in the environment? I learned picking it up in the environment. Um, the environment that I was placed in was a team environment, and the Spanish guys, um, what I thought was a brutal way of breaking me in, as far as uh, you know, learning the culture. They actually did me a favor. They spoke to me in Spanish. Now, basketball, of course, is an international yep. language. So you understand positions on, on the court and whatever name they had for it. You know, and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, English is Latin-based. Yeah. So you understood partly what they were saying. All right. But um, they spoke to me in Spanish only. And I was lucky enough to have two Americans on my team who, um, who uh, were fluent in Spanish. So... They translated for me, and uh, it didn't take me long to become quite conversational. I would say the first year I learned how to have a conversation, by the middle of my second year I could do an interview. And um, it was mostly because you know, I didn't know what they were saying about me. So I wanted to make sure, what did yeah. you say? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, w- I would say by the, by the middle of my second year in Spain, I could hold a pretty good conversation and, and do an interview. Um, your experiences over there as a, as a black man, was it different than being in America? So, uh, no, I'm going to say no. And this is why as a, I'd be silly to sit here and say that my stature, my physical stature, um, doesn't give me advantages. Okay. Um, my physical stature gave me advantages in Europe also. Um, they knew I was a basketball player. I was American, so whatever Spanish I spoke was with an American accent. Yep. <laughs> I was on TV every day, and uh, they didn't feel as threatened. Now, as far as racism is, is concerned, I was. Uh, what I noticed was is if I went to Madrid and I went to Barcelona and I spoke to the people, they hate the people from Barcelona hated the people from Madrid. The people from Madrid hated the people from Barcelona. So that was one aspect of that that, mm-hmm. that, that, that racism that they had there. Okay, this is my group. This is your group. Yeah. Um, 
the southern Spain was different. Southern Spain had a lot more black people. In yeah. it. People who looked like me, and I, I happened to be in southern Spain. But they were being treated like shit. You know, yeah. They were coming over. I mean, Spain is, um, you know, especially if you're talking southern Spain or the Canary Islands, you're closer to Africa. Yeah. So they were coming over on the boats, and, you know, you'd see... Um, you'd see the Coast Guard, Spanish Coast Guard, stopping them and, you know, keeping in their place, putting them in their camps. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, I heard all type of crazy shit. You know, they're, they're trying to ruin our country, this, that, and the other. And then they turn around and they hate each other. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I've, I've seen it from many areas, man. This is just, it, it's tribalism at its best. Or yeah. I should say at its worst. And, um, but, you know, when I, when I sit, when I sit back and look at it, I, I mean, you and I can sit here and have a conversation. We share a lot in common. Yeah. And that's what we stick to. You know, um, I think everything around us just divides us, man, from religion to color to everything else. And I'm, I'm tired of being divided. Yeah. I need to pull myself together. Well, it's cra- something that I I learned later on in life when I started to really understand the scope of the racial divide that is now worldwide. And there's all these different it's tribalism. And it, it's it's. But what's so sad is that race is such a, a huge part of society now, but the, the, the concept of it only came into existence in the 1500s. If you look at history, mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. that, race wasn't a dividing. It wasn't even some people believed in that, like, the notion of race. Like, people saw that people are different colors, obviously, because people were interacting. Mm-hmm. There was trade going mm-hmm. on. There was, but it wasn't this, like, oh, well, you have this skin color. Everyone with this skin color, we think shares these traits and is the right. same people and everyone right. with this skin color is has these traits and is the same people and they're totally different that like if you look at the empires whether it's ancient egypt rome mesopotamia carthage uh all these different uh, greece there's just in in human history the empires that have risen and fallen they were they got so big that they did trade with other empires mm-hmm. in you know Africa, Europe, Asia, and people would migrate and would become citizens or whatever at the time the belief was. Mm-hmm. Uh, all different races. Like, yeah, I look at Rome because you think of Rome as being, you know, it's Europe where we have this notion of of, of being white and being white. But, like, in the Roman Empire, they traded throughout Africa. There were people that were of African ancestry that were citizens of Rome that achieved different positions. That race mm-hmm. was not mm-hmm. something that held people back or determined what position they could hold. It wasn't until the 1500s that this notion, and it was really because of, oh, we found, we're, we're voyaging the New mm-hmm. World. Uh, we want to harvest all the stuff from the New World, the resources to get rich. Uh, we need human bodies to be able to come and work for free, essentially. So let's find a way to justify it. And it's if you think of it, that, that's about 1,500. So now that's like 500 years. 500 years in the grand scope of human existence is like that. It, it's such a minuscule part that humans have been around that this notion of race has existed. And yet it's so such a big part of society now. It's like, it's just crazy. Yeah. Um, see, see I, was, I, I was taught differently um, I, I know I know our history as Americans, as far as Western civilization is concerned. Um, the, the histories that I learned about were, you know, like for instance, one of the things I learned was, is you know, when we when we talk about Greece, and this is nothing against my Greek brothers and yeah. sisters, but where did you learn these things from? You, they didn't. They weren't just ideas that came up. I mean, these were ideas that you took from other cultures. Yeah. And now we find paleontologists and everyone else, you know, telling us that the world is, uh, and I've always believed that the world can't be 6,000 years old. It has to be much, you know, yeah. as far as we're concerned, you know, as, as far as religion teaches us, it's 6,000 years old. Or, yeah. you know, a little bit more. Yeah. But wait a minute. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, we know it's been around a lot longer so, than So, <laughs> you know. Uh, Millions of years. Exactly. <laughs> so I was taught, you know, he, he who knows one book knows none. Yeah. Okay. So... You know, if 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 I'm gonna have a conversation, and I'd much rather sit down and uh, say, okay, well, show me what you got, and uh, okay, well, here's you know the evolution of man, or you know whatever. I mean, you can you know I, I think even with you know the, your our creation stories, whether the creation stories comes from you know Mesopotamia or 
you know, people are talking about the Bible and yep. this, that, and the other. You know, Christians have their version. You know, uh, Judaism has its culture, you know, version. Uh, Muslims have their culture, but they're three Abrahamic religions. Yeah. So, I mean, you know. The Jews tell stories? Well, <laughs> we don't do that. We don't do that. No, but, we don't talk. We don't like but to talk. They're great for perspective. You know, I don't have to agree with it, but yeah. I need to know where you're coming from. And maybe we can find some common ground. So, not to jump around too much, but I feel like that this happens when there's there's so much that trying to cover in these first two episodes yeah, of yeah. kind of setting the. But we talked about your career, and we talked about when it came to an end, and you had said that you didn't have regrets at that point, which that's amazing to not have regrets, not have big. Well, no, I mean well, you to 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 I should no, say I, I not see... not having regrets, but be at peace with the decision mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. So I think you did say we all have regrets, yes, exactly, which I agree with. But so backtrack, not not regrets, but to reach the the end of that specific road and be turning on to the next road and be at peace with that decision is something that a lot of athletes don't have. So that's a to me is 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 uh, impressive. Um, I'm 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 hoping maybe we could just go a little more in depth into um, when it came to an end. Where did you go next? Did you have a plan? So, um, in trying to relate ball is life to this conversation, um, if I'm going to use the terminology transition, you know, transition is whether you're transitioning on offense or you're transitioning back on defense. My transition was smooth. Um, as smooth as it could possibly be um, as far as my viewpoint was concerned because I had people around me. I had a great support system. Um, basketball at this point, is, it, it's, still, it's never ended for me. I've just, I've just made room for something else, you know, probably for, for the me that's always been here. Um, I'm at, I'm, I'm at, I was at peace because I gave it everything I had. And I remember specifically, you know, one girlfriend I had, you know, when I was on this this protein diet, no sugar, you know, no, and that's a hard diet to be on, you know, especially when you're in America and you're looking yeah. at Wendy's and you know, I want, <laughs> I want a baconator. You know? And she said, man, you are serious about this because I'm getting up, I'm eating my steaks, I've got my broccoli. I mean, this is steak for steak for breakfast, you know, chicken for lunch, fish for dinner. No sugars, no nothing. She says, you are serious. And I said, well, you know, I've got to act like this is my career. And, you know, I, I had to be in it and of it. You, you can't pretend. You're either a player or you're a pretender. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be a player. So, you know, and again, uh, you know, my mentor at the time made it easy for me, um, easier for me. I mean, it, it's hard to physically not be able to compete the way you want to. Yeah. But, uh you know, I was still able to to to, to stay in the game and, and and give start to give back what I had learned. You mentioned your mentor at the time. Is that is that Wayne that we're talking about? It is Wayne. Yeah. Tell me about about Wayne. Tell me about his his impact on your life, your relationship with him. You okay. know, I know Wayne. Wayne sure. is a Wayne is a character. He's a force in nature. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne is a five foot something, and it's below five ten, and it's probably below five nine. Force yeah. of nature. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. So, um, there are people who communicate, and there are people who connect. Um, Wayne is good at both. All right. Um, no, he's a master at both. Um, this is a short, bald, Jewish white man. All right who found a way to touch my heart and my mind. So when those two come together, you're basically unstoppable, okay? Um, I was failing as a pro. Um, Wayne walked in, and, you know, there was an old reporter named Peter Vesey, and, I, and Wayne looked so much like Peter Vesey that, I, you know, I was just brushing him off because, uh, you know, Wayne can talk, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And, um, you know, and he was saying things at the time that I probably wasn't ready to hear, especially when you're failing. You don't want people telling you, hey, you're failing. Yep. All right. Now, he was trying to tell me he could help me. But you know, there were there were messages that I just wasn't prepared to hear. But anyway, this guy has done so much for uh, bass for, for, for athletes. 
um, that you know I'm, I'm fortunate enough to uh, have have had him uh, come to me and be a part of my life. And again, you know, when you're talking about racism, if I am looking at you, if I am looking at you and I disagree um, with your belief, um, then I'm probably not going to open up my mind to anything positive that you have to say. And as athletes, you know, we're we're pretty uh, we're pretty fixed in, in into what we want. Yeah. He just found a way to keep communicate with me and uh, help me achieve what I wanted. He Wayne, you, you talked about him being he's a, he's he's a, a short bald Jewish guy, and that you uh, you just brushed him off at first. Do you think his? Do you think that uh, his physical appearance? And Wayne's not like he's not an unathlete. I mean, him and his brother Keith keep himself in good mm-hmm. shape. Keith's a mm-hmm. strength trainer. But do you think that 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 initially you dismissed him because of exterior? Absolutely, absolutely. Which is why um, you know, again, I mean, I'm, I'm, we started on the topic of racism. Yeah. Um, this is it's what I see. My resolution wasn't strong enough, right, to see through my own perception. And uh, like I said, the guy touched my heart. I brushed him off because he was short, he was bald, not necessarily because he was white, but you just yeah. don't match the profile of a good basketball coach. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've had Hall of Fame coches. Yeah. He didn't look like one. Yep. <laughs> so I'm like, no, I'm out. How long did it take, do you think, for him to connect with you and you to start buying in? It took me, uh, let's see, uh, rookie years. So I came out in 91. We started working together in 94. Okay. I probably met him in the summer of 91 for the first wow. time. Wow, so th- like like three three years, yeah. Yes, and when you're, you know, and I was failing as a pro. I was in everybody's summer camp. Um, yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm doing decently, but not enough for anyone to say yes to me. You know, just, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll have you back. So yeah, it took me almost three years to uh, get to get get myself together. Do you think if you had gotten with Wayne, if you had met him and had bought in, say in college, like a lot of the guys that you and Wayne would bring in were college players, do you think your career arc might have been different if you had started working with him sooner? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I think about my career arc after I started working with him, mm-hmm. you know, it always makes you think, oh man, I wish I would have done this sooner. So. Uh, Yes, absolutely. You think, as a guy that was on the cusp of the NBA, that maybe it, it happens if you were if you got with him from the beginning? Uh, yes, it happens. Although I don't know um, if I end up being the me that I am today. You know, there sometimes you win. You know, sometimes you learn. Yeah, I think that's an, a great mindset, and it's something that I have to remind myself too about. Because when we talk about regrets in the, in the previous episode, I'm certainly, I can't say I'm someone that has no regrets. I've got mm-hmm. a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But I do have to remind myself that if not for all of those failings, I might not be the person. I might not have the things that I have, the family that I have today. Right. Um, so when you start being on the other side of the ball and you start being a coach, you start training the next generation, you're working with you know, there are a lot of guys that came through Wayne's that were, you know, people might not go, oh, that's an NBA superstar. But they were p- names people would recognize and players that seemed like were straddling that line between NBA and not or were not yet there or had been there, failed, and he helped get them back there. Um, but how, how would you describe becoming a coach, a trainer, and, and, and working with players now? I mean, is it frustrating at times because you're still a younger guy relatively when you're coaching, you start coaching, you see kids that either can't do the things that you could do or kids that maybe have the opportunities and they're, they're, they're not taking full advantage, not buying in? Like, what, what is that like when you transition to coaching? So, I mean, it, it's nuanced. All right. As, as far as the physical part is concerned, um, you know, we've all got different physical capabilities. So, of course, there are guys I would look at and say he's not going hard enough because my my M.O. was is that I'm going to go hard and give you everything I have. Um, mentally, 
because I had played the game and I would learned from so many great players, uh, you, you have to sit and, and check yourself before you start correcting the young guys because, you know, the, the, the mode of correction when I was a kid was more of don't cry about it, don't talk about it, be about it. And now um, I think with our kids as, as, as we try to raise them, um, you know, the messages aren't as, as harsh, aren't as abrupt. And the kids today aren't, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say that they aren't built for them. I'm saying that that's not their particular uh, preference. And that's tough because as a coach, you know, especially as a, a coach today, if you're dealing with kids who aren't as, as emotionally resilient, then your job's on the line. So you're always fighting yourself and you're fighting the kid, you know, who has no idea of what he or she is about to go through. It's tough. You know, and and you're not a player anymore. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, what do you do? You you try to garner respect by by reaching their their, their minds and their hearts. Do you still ever pick up a, I mean, I see you I've seen you working kids out to this day. When you're hands-on, when you're there, you'll do a move in front of them. Mm-hmm. You knock down shots like crazy. That carries weight with mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. Hey, this person could do. He, he he can walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Do you ever on your own time, though, what, no one's in the gym or you're not training kids, do you ever still pick up a basketball and shoot or, or play? Is that something that you ever do anymore for fun, or is it? I will pick up a basketball to shoot because I don't want to be embarrassed in front of the kids if I'm showing some, showing them something. But uh, to play, no. I'm I'm thinking, who's going to put me back together if something breaks? <laughs> <laughs> I have no desire to play. I haven't had a desire to uh, for, for, to play for a, a long while now. It's probably been over a decade. Oh. Um, you know, even with my son, I would never uh, I would never play him one on one. Because I knew the competitive spirit in me would have taken me away from being a father. Yeah, I don't need to prove myself against my son. You know, I know there, and I, it's nothing against fathers and parents doing that yeah. with their yeah. children. But just me, I couldn't do it. That's not the way I wanted to teach him. You know, so was basketball fun throughout your career, or did it? I should say, did it ever reach a point where it wasn't fun? I mean, it's a job when you're playing professionally. It's a job in college. A lot of people, when we talk about NIL stuff in a bit, yeah. there's this big misconception about, like, oh, they're amateur. No, it's a job. But was it was it a fun job, or was there, were there times when it wasn't fun? Basketball is always fun. It has always been fun for me. Um, I think where people lo- lose um, the love for the game is, you know, when they're disappointed because something didn't happen the way they – conceived that it should have or um, you don't enjoy the continuous cost of playing you know there's always a cost and um, it never stops you know you keep giving and giving and giving and uh, it takes a lot of energy and if you don't have something or someone to replenish that energy you know to help you replenish that energy then it gets extremely tough, but I was, again, I was fortunate, man, where I had people, uh, it, the game stayed fun for me, and I loved the work behind it. So today, uh, present day, you're still uh, training athletes. Mm-hmm. You help out with an AAU program. You train them. You coach them. Um Talk about who you're. Who are you? You you working with today? Like what kind of? You know, you give me specific names, but what what kind of players are you working with today? And has that evolved or changed over your time training people? So the players I'm working with today are mostly high school players, um, kids who, for one reason or another, haven't found themselves. They may not even be good enough to play high school basketball. What I get a chance to do is, is I, ch- I get a chance to help them find themselves through the sport, and I use the court as my classroom. You know, we we talk life. The basketball is the easy part. You can you know you can teach people different techniques according to their strength areas, and you can fill different holes. But you know, I I, I love kids working with kids who 
have no chance and, and giving them um, hope. Uh, that's on the basketball side of things and, yeah. the, and the strength training side of things. Um, you know, you talked about you know, the, the, uh, the NILs. Um, right now I'm a part of an agency with an old, uh, a friend of mine who also played basketball back in the day, and, and you know him. We, uh, we've created an agency, and we're helping some very good football players uh, grab some NILs. We, um, we ended up having signing the first player, first basketball player in, in upstate New York to an NIL deal. Um, well, to the first NIL deal in upstate yep. New York, I should say. And right now we have one of the top receivers in the country who is uh, committed to the University, <laughs> University of Pittsburgh. And uh, among, among others, among others, yep. it's, called, it's called Glory to Glory Sports Agency. And uh, we're loving what we're doing because, you know, with the landscape of college basketball being, or college sports being the way it is now, man, it's, uh, the kids absolutely have a chance to be something more than they would have been. So NIL for those that 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 aren't aware is called it's name, image, and likeness. And there was there was a landmark Supreme Court ruling a little while back that basically said that uh, the NCAA for college sports was um, it, it basically was uh, it well, well the long and short of it is that college athletes are essentially employees, are workers, and they were not being compensated that denying them the right to make money off of their work was illegal and so before that college athletes could not get endorsement deals they could not get sponsorships you basically couldn't make money for being an athlete in college and you had athletes that made the big time division one colleges the north carolinas and dukes in basketball the auburns and alabamas and university of miami's in mm -hmm. football mm -hmm. you know th those programs they make millions and the ncaa as a whole the schools make billions the big time schools off of college athletics off of their TV deals off of sponsorship and endorsement deals with sports companies off of all this mm -hmm. stuff. But the athletes that are out there that are doing the, the, the work, the, they, they couldn't make a cent off of their name. The schools could use that when you buy you Bobby Martin at Pitt, Pitt could put you on a billboard, mm -hmm. say, come buy tickets, you know, over yep. the highway. Absolutely. They could make all kinds of money off of you, but you weren't allowed to. Uh, you know, sign uh, uh, an endorsement deal with a local sports apparel, sporting goods store mm -hmm. that would give you money to buy pizza every week. If, if you did that, the NCAA would say you're in violation, you're ineligible, you can't play for X amount of games. Or if it was, they've determined it was bad enough, you'd just lose your eligibility forever. Yeah. yeah. And so this ruling changed it. So now athletes can make money, and it's been, you know, really the first year of it. Uh, and, and kids are signing endorsement deals. Some of them at small schools are signing small ones, you know, like out of UMass. I, mean, I think it was a moving company was signing mm -hmm. some kids out there. Mm -hmm. But then you've got other kids that are signing these massive deals. Like there's kids at the University of Miami are millions and millions of dollars. Yes. Um, but what are your feelings on NIL? Because you were, you really, I mean, I was an athlete, but I was never a big enough athlete, even in my prime uh, as, you know, as a baseball player, college baseball players, unless you're at, not just, you know, unless you're at one of the biggest time. Nobody knows who you are, so. I never would have been in a position to make more than pizza money, but you, back in your prime, uh, could have and should and probably should have. So I'm wondering, what are your views on the NIL? So I'm going to start by saying that um, this is something that the NCAA has created. Um, Frankenstein was the doctor, not the monster. Yeah. So now they're trying to put the genie back in the bottle, and I don't know if they're going to be able to do it. I absolutely believe that that the kids should be able to make money off of their name, image, and likeness. Um, I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, coming out of high school, we had the number one recruiting class in the country, so yep. I don't know if Pitt would have been able to afford us. <laughs> 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 you know, there's a kid at Pitt, a receiver, uh, he just won the Bolitnikoff Award yep. uh, let, no, at the end of last season. Yep. And, you know, he's going to USC for $2 million. So, yep. you know, this is something that's always been around. It's just now that it's legal. 
So the big scandals that we heard about, you know, that involved actually one of my ex-college teammates and, and good friend of mine, Sean Miller. Yeah. You know, and all these other schools, you know, you hear about Bill Self and everybody else and, you know, what Adidas and, you know, yeah. and, and TJ Gasnola and all these guys. Well, now it's legal. Yeah. So the sneaker companies themselves are, are going to say, look, <laughs> we can pay whomever we want as much as we want, and it's all legal. The boosters are now fighting because they're the ones that want to give the money to the kids. Yeah, and, and to me, like you said, this was always going on, not to the same degree of financially because it's all under the table, so you can't really give a kid a million dollars without being mm-hmm. found out. But to me, it's one, if you're doing the work, which is these kids are, literally there was for generations, what what kind of started all of this was there was EA Sports had these college basketball and football games Mm -hmm. that they were putting out for, you know, like Sega Genesis and Nintendo 64. And and they would have on the cover of the game when you would go and buy it, you know, they would have a a college basketball player, whoever you like, it was Ed O'Bannon started. Shout out to Ed O'Bannon. Yeah, big to Ed (laughs) O'Bannon, UCLA national champion. Uh, I remember when when they won the whole thing. They beat Arkansas. Um, was was up late that night. I think I was in the fifth grade. Um, but uh, you know they used his his image to to sell games to make mm-hmm. millions. Of, I mean the EA Sports franchise was probably made billions of dollars overall. Right. And using college athletes in their marketing, but college athletes didn't get a dime from that. And it's like if you're going to use someone's image to sell your goods, they should get a cut. If University of North Carolina or I remember, you know, like my favorite college basketball player. I grew up, you know, my dad played at UMass. I, I, you know, Lou Rowe was my favorite player. I, you know, shout out to Lou, your, your guy from, out Atl- to Lou. from Atlantic City. AC. I remember looking for a Lou Rowe number 15 jersey. Mm-hmm. And it's like UMass is selling the number 15 jerseys. And then the number Camby was 21 or 23. I can't believe I'm forgetting this. That's, that's embarrassing. But, you know, Lou Rowe and Marcus Camby, they're selling their jerseys. UMass was when they were big time. Yep. And of course, I'm buying it with the number of my favorite player. I, yes. I know whose jersey that is as a fifth grader. Mm-hmm. I want a Lou Rowe jersey or a fourth grader. Yes. Like they're making raking in money, and the kid, the the players who are the reason why they're selling these jerseys can't get a dime. That's why I don't understand the the opposition. I understand the opposition from schools and the NCAA because they stand to lose a lot of money. They mm-hmm. had a monopoly on making money it was them and the coaches are the ones that make the money and the players are getting nothing so they're the pie gets cut up more now for the money that you're bringing in i understand i don't think they're right but i understand the motivation but i don't understand the motivation of these fans and people that sit back that are like opposed to it like oh it's gonna be the end it's such a terrible thing it's like why because people are actually getting paid for their work yeah what it does is it um have you ever been in the shower and somebody comes and throws cold water on you when you take a hot shower? <laughs> That's what it feels like to those people. Look, it's and I'm saying this as a college athlete. Um, you know, there were months when you know I was wondering when I was going to get something to eat. Yeah. You know, it's it's tough when you're not allowed to even get a free meal. But you know, you, you get training table during the season. You know, yep. you get your lunch. You get your Regular college meals is everyone. Everyone else, you know, if you pay for a, uh, well, at that time, were lunch tickets or whatever. Yeah. But in the end, um, the NCA was full. Of, you know, some people in the NCA were full of shit. Yeah. Look, when I think what they say is, well, you can, uh, you know, we're giving you a free, uh, a free ride to college. You know, you're getting a scholarship. If you're sitting in a room with 300 people, do you think the professors are going to notice if you're not in there? Yeah. Most people weren't fortunate enough, most players weren't fortunate enough to come out of school and and play professionally like I did. I was fortunate enough to do it, and I was going down the wrong track. There was a huge chance that I wouldn't make it, right? But unfortunately, I found the right people, or the right people found me. But most athletes don't play professionally. So now you graduate from college, hopefully, then you come out into a job market that doesn't exist. So if you're if 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 you're talking the the Milton Friedman you know taking the Milton Friedman look at things you're saying okay well we're going to take advantage of this disaster and that's exactly what the kids are doing today they're going to take advantage of this this it should have always been like this there's no amateurism No exactly and and 
I always remember a story, and I've heard millions of them, but so a guy that I know, his name is Asane Fay. He played at the University of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, graduated in 2002, so I was a senior in high school. Not not to date anyone here, but... Uh, and and Asan was, was uh, really, really smart. Super, like, NBA-level athleticism, 6'7", six, 6'8", six, wing at UNH. So okay, it's like, UNH, what, are you do, okay. what are you doing up there? Mm-hmm. UNH is a small Division One program for people that don't know. Nobody, almost nobody goes to the games up there. Like, relatively, you know, a couple hundred fans mm-hmm. for a basketball game. Basketball is not, they've got hockey and football are bigger up there. Okay. But football, even there, they're they're the the the, the football championship subdivision. So FC, so they're like one double A used to be the lower level of Division One right. for football. It's a small school in a small town. Um, it is not a national power. It is not a team that really makes money on its athletics. So, Asane, this is a guy who is notoriously UNH has very tough admission standards mm-hmm. that. A lot of players that co- different coaches over the years wanted to recruit for men's basketball, they could not get them through admissions. And these were good students, right? good kids, that the admissions was very tough. They didn't really give them breaks like some schools will give breaks for different athletes and, and other things, too, legacies, kids that, that whose families donated enough money for a new library, whatever. But UNH really didn't give breaks to athletics. So Asane goes there. He's from uh, Senegal, I think, originally. Um, he goes there. He's a great student. He's in, I believe it was an engineering program. It's a really tough program. It's, it's, I think it was engineering. Mm-hmm. And when he was recruited, the program was one of the reasons that he made the choice to go to UNH. Mm-hmm. And the coaches... The engineering program. The engineering program. Yes. And the coaches said, yeah, you can come here. You, you play for us. You get this degree that you want. And th- this is the allure people will say, well, college athletes don't need to be paid. What I'm getting at here is college athletes don't need to be paid because they're getting their degree for free. But the problem is what is the value of that degree and are you actually getting that degree? And mm-hmm. I use Asana as, as an example because he went there. He was recruited. They used this great program, academic program, mm-hmm. to get him to commit there over mm-hmm. other places. His junior year, there's a coaching change. Um the coach said he he has a going into his senior year now. He has a lab at nights. Oh, I know where you're going with and this. And <laughs> the coach now, head coach, says basically you need to change your major because mm-hmm. this lab interferes with practice. Mm-hmm. And Asane's, I've been here for three years. I'm about to graduate. This degree is the reason why I committed here. And the coach is saying, well, no, like we need you at all of our practices. And so if you're saying, if you're recruiting kids and, and the, the motto that all these people are saying kids shouldn't be paid is, well, you're getting a free degree. But what's that degree worth? Because a lot of these programs are forcing kids into easy majors, that majors that you can't really do anything with because they want them to dedicate their entire lives in college to the sport, not to the pursuit of the academics, mm-hmm. not to anything else we talk about with college, mm-hmm. but we talk about the sport. Now, Asana said, no. Like, I'm going to this class. I'm a senior. I'm getting this degree. And his senior year, he basically winds up being benched. Mm -hmm. He plays coming off the bench. But he was a a world-class athlete Mm -hmm. in a small Division I conference. And he does not get the playing time that his abilities deserve because the coach, he's in the doghouse because of um, prioritizing his academics. Right. And... So this is the thing I always think about, and this is at a small program. Imagine it at these big-time programs. There was a scandal several years ago at North Carolina where there was, there was a kind of like you know a specific major that they were funneling basketball and football players yes. into. Yes. That you know that they were saying that, that 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 kids really couldn't do much with a degree in the major, and that there were joke classes, mm-hmm. and and it's we need to just it's pulling back the curtain in the Wizard of Oz of like. All these notions that we were told about what college athletics is all about and the student athlete, it's not true. It's about money. It's about winning. And, and, and we bring kids in as, as athletes. They're being brought in to focus on that sport. Yes. Um, wow. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a great story, and it's completely accurate. UNH and what was the kid's name? Asane Faye. Asane. Um, that is, it's not an uncommon story. Um, the scandal that was going on at UNC yep. a couple of years ago that you mentioned. Um, 
it goes on more. It, it, that happens a lot more than 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 people think. You know, it's hard to you declare a major. Your major may require more time in the classroom than it does on the court. And to ask this young man to to come back and give up his lifelong dream, he wanted to go to college and say, well, you have to have something to fall back on. Now you are taking away what he needs to fall back on after he's done. Um, look, all coaches aren't good coaches. All people aren't good people. Look, we this it's, it's part of life. But... Uh, I'm proud of that young man for uh, for for standing up to what he believed in, and you know, right now th- those are those are the unintended consequences that that happen. So even if you're talking NILs now, you know, as we mentioned, you you come out of school looking to get into a job market that you're, it's going to be tough to get into, right? The value of the dollar is basically nothing now, right? So are you angry at a kid for making more of a less valuable dollar so they have a chance to actually start their lives afterwards? If you tell me that 1% plays professional basketball, but you're good enough to earn a scholarship to college, well, what's going to happen? Some of the the teams that aren't revenue generating are probably going to take the brunt of it because they're going to have to allocate that money to paying their players. But if the player's smart and and the parents are smart, they're going to help that young man or that young woman, all right, save that money, put it away, so when they come out of school, they will probably have made more money than they will have in their first half a decade of being out of school. And those are, you know, the yeah. top tier. I mean, you got to be kidding me. This is, this is supposed to happen. Good for them. I, yeah, I mean, the other thing to think about, too, is, like, uh, you think about kids that go to school – for different things, they will use whatever their skill set is to make an income. The, the, those that are, you know, whether it's in the summer. So let's say you got into a prestigious Ivy League school. Mm-hmm. I mean, geez, how many kids have I seen or, uh, you know, advertising tutoring services while they're in school, like uh, SAT prep services? I got into Harvard. I got a 1600 on my SATs. You see the, the flyers. You see it online. You know, uh, I'm offering tutoring SAT prep. Like, those kids are allowed to use what made them attractive to colleges Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to make income. Kids that are in medical school, you know, once you do your residency, that's part of med school. Yes. You get paid. You don't get paid a full doctor's salary, Mm -hmm. you know, that people talk about being starving starving med students. But you are able to make something from that. You, you, You went to, you're going to medical school. You're using the skills that you're going to college with. At this kind of job training placement mm-hmm. residency, you're mm-hmm. getting paid a salary. It's not mm-hmm. a full doctor, but so if kids are world class college athletes, why shouldn't they be able to get endorsement deals or over the summer run camps? Mm-hmm. They go back to their mm-hmm. you go back home for a couple weeks in the summer yes. because that's the thing other people don't understand. Yes. College athletes, for the most part. In the summer, even at the Division three level, you have to be on campus for part of the summer. You gotta be you're, on campus, you're yes. doing classes, you're in the weight, you've got structured lifts, you have workouts. So it's not like you're able to go back home. They are and, not normal college kids. And go no. work at your local, you know, uh, McDonald's or go work at, at a summer camp, you know, for the whole summer to make some money to get you through the college year. Like you're expected to be on college for at least one of the two summer semesters. Yes. So why why can't you shouldn't you be able to make money? You know, they have these kids. How about did you ever work a camp? I know I did when when you're in college, I don't know about with you where your coaches or your program mm-hmm. will run a summer camp. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and players on the team are expected to work the camp? Yes, we had Little Panthers. Working. And not get paid for working the camp? I've heard about that. Yeah. yeah I've heard guys didn't get paid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it's just expected that you, yeah. oh, you remember this program, you work the camp, mm-hmm. and you know who gets paid from the camp? The coaches get paid from the coaches camp. Coaches get paid. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. So isn't this – this is totally against the free market capitalism – that 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 the boosters and the schools and everybody else that um, uh, uh, tries to teach us, right? We learn about this all the time. Well, what's going on with free market capitalism now? Well, because we f- we finally figured out that we should be getting paid and we fought for it. Now it's oh no, oh you can't. And please, please, I've got some choice words in Spanish, but I won't <laughs> use them. <laughs> 
Well, I believe that brings us to the end of our second episode. Bobby, I really appreciate once again. I'm looking forward to episode three, which will drop next week. I'm hoping that people will continue to tune in. Uh, any thoughts, Bobby? Any final thoughts? Shout out to Ed O'Bannon. Love you, man. <laughs> Shout out to Ed O'Bannon. I'm so glad that they beat Arkansas that year, by the way. I couldn't have dealt with Arkansas winning back-to-back. So thank you, Ed O'Bannon. Salvage day, miserable end of the year for me because uh, my UMass Minutemen fell to big country Bryant Reeves in the Elite Eight. If Lou Rowe didn't have the flu that game and the late Mike Williams hadn't been booted from the team, who knows what might have happened. Might have had our first uh, championship and only championship in UMass basketball history. I'm, I'm sure Cal and Lou would have told you. Yeah. That. <laughs>